Hey, good day, grace and peace to each and every one of you. It's Captain Roger from the Salvation Army Corps in Grass Valley, California. Thank you for joining us for our online worship in study time. You know, they say the details of a sermon fade from memory on average about an hour after it's over. In case that's true, let me just remind you that back in Acts 11, there was a thing that happened. This is from Acts 11, verses 27 through 30. During this time, some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. One of them, named Agabus, stood up and through the Spirit predicted that a severe famine would spread over the entire Roman world. This happened during the reign of Claudius. The disciples, as each one was able, decided to provide help for the brothers and sisters living in Judea. This they did, sending their gifts to the elders by Barnabas and Saul. Now, this gift, when it got there, it was well received, and though it didn't get the Jewish believers and Gentile believers working together in perfect unity, it did help them recognize that being followers of Jesus meant being family, looking out for and caring for one another, no matter how different they were from one another. As Jesus said, whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. Now, when Paul brought that gift to Jerusalem and he spoke with the leaders there, there was a recognition that the things which had divided them didn't need to. The command of Jesus to love one another transcended the differences of culture. Or it could, anyway. As Paul wrote in his letter to the Galatians, what mattered was Jesus and his message being lived out. The leadership recognized that they were two groups that likely to have different styles, but they could have the same focus. Paul, in his letter to the Galatians, passed on that all they asked was that we should continue to remember the poor, the very thing I had been eager to do all along. Now, that offering that he brought, that showed love. A group of people who previously would have been happy to see the other groups starve because of the history between them found that the love of Jesus inspired them to bring food instead of hatred. Now, many people don't realize that wasn't a new thing. It's what God has asked of his people all along. And I don't just mean after Jesus either. I mean, yeah, sure, Jesus said, but to you who are listening, I say, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, and pray for those who mistreat you. But Jesus wasn't just making that up like a new thing. Just like almost everything he had to say, it came straight from what God had been saying all along. Offer kindness instead of anger. Offer aid instead of retribution. It's written into the law of Moses. Deuteronomy 23, verses 4 and 5 say, If you come across your enemy's ox or donkey wandering off, be sure to return it. If you see the donkey of someone who hates you fallen down under its load, don't leave it there. Be sure you help them with it. And it's laid out as a directive for life in the Proverbs. If your enemy is hungry, give him food to eat. If he's thirsty, give him water to drink. That's Proverbs 25, 21. Wait, wait, can't we just kill them instead? Well, no, not according to God. Or so says Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 35. God says, it's mine to avenge. I will repay. And that means that trusting God means trusting God's way, trusting God's justice rather than having our way. Proverbs twenty twenty two teaches, do not say, I'll pay you back for this wrong. Instead, wait for the Lord and he will avenge you. 
And if that's how we're to behave towards our enemies who hate us, who wish us dead, or who are even actively trying to kill us, how much more should we be careful to bring the same love to those who are our brothers and sisters because they follow Jesus and strive to do God's will? So we need to bend our efforts towards living in unity and, and help how we can as part of those efforts. Now, today we're starting in Acts chapter 20. So flip there, if you haven't done it already. Acts chapter 20. It's the story of another offering being sent to the poor of Jerusalem. And it's this collection that Paul's been gathering for some time, two or three years, it seems. Luke hardly mentions it, though Paul writes about it in several of his letters to and for the various church communities. But Luke had to fit his whole story on one scroll, and his focus was on the working of the Holy Spirit to bring the gospel to the larger world. So he often left these kind of details out so he could keep that message at the fore. This gift he mentions one time, obliquely, in a speech that Paul gives in Acts 24. But a lot of today's passage is about what is being brought to Jerusalem. So it seems important to remind us what's going on behind the story. Now, many of Paul's letters were written during the time we're looking at. And the importance of this gift is often something Paul references. In uh, 1 Corinthians 16, for example, he says, Now, about the collection for the Lord's people. Do what I told the Galatian churches to do. On the first day of every week, each one of you should set aside a sum of money in keeping with your income, saving it up so that when I come, no collections will have to be made. Then, when I arrive, I will give letters of introduction to the men you approve and send them with your gift to Jerusalem. If it seems advisable for me to go also, they will accompany me. Now, there's a lot I find commendable about what he just wrote. There's no emotional appeal. There's no manipulation in the ask. There's no reference to Old Testament-style tithing. There's no suggestion of how much anyone should be giving. Yeah, he says, within your, keeping in line of your your uh, income. But um, that that just means don't give what you can't afford to give. Give freely. There's no compulsion here. It's not that he doesn't think giving is important. He does. But God gives to his people freely. So the model of giving Paul encourages is one that's just as free. How we give and how much should be a decision that we make, not one that is imposed on us, or isn't really a gift, is it? Being part of the followers of the way of Jesus is a learning experience. It's learning to reach out to meet the needs of those around us. More specifically, it's about making decisions to choose to care for the needs of others over our own wants which is a decision that could be summed up in just one word, love, as in love your neighbor, love your enemy, love. Yeah. Paul also builds accountability into the gift giving. He doesn't say, give me the money. He says, send it with your approved representative and I'll send the reps together to deliver the gift. Or he says, he'd bring them if that seems advisable, which apparently it did, as we will see. Uh, we'd better get moving or he's never going to get to Jerusalem. Now, remember, Paul's been living in Ephesus for more than three years, and he had recently begun to plan to move on when there was this riot in the city. We learned all about that in the last chapter. We saw how it was dispersed and the followers of the way were able to continue their work in the city. So we want to start at Acts chapter 20, verse 1. 
When the uproar had ended, Paul sent for the disciples, and after encouraging them, said goodbye and set out for Macedonia. He traveled through that area, speaking many words of encouragement to the people, and finally arrived in Greece, where he stayed three months. Because some Jews had plotted against him just as he was about to sail for Syria, he decided to go back through Macedonia. He was accompanied... (laughs) I can stop for just a sec. Three months. Three months seems to be like Paul's sweet spot. After three months, wherever he's at, if he's been there for three months, you can pretty much guarantee someone's going to try to kill him. I'm not sure what that is or what that says about him, but uh, there must be just something grating about his personality, and that's as far as you can take it before people just get... Anyway, sorry. He decided to go back through Macedonia. He was accompanied by Sopater, son of Pyrrhus, from Berea, Aristarchus, and Secundus from Thessalonica, Gaius from Derby, Timothy also, and Tychicus and Trophimus from the province of Asia. These men went ahead and waited for us at Troas. But we sailed from Philippi after the festival of unleavened bread and five days later joined the others at Troas, where we stayed seven days. Ah, so many names and places. What is with all that? Well, what it's about is the collection. Each of these men is from one of those central church areas where the offering had been taken up. In those days, you couldn't just make an electronic transfer of funds. When you sent money somewhere, you actually sent money somewhere. So each of these people represents an area that took up a collection over the past months or years, and each of them is traveling with their community's gift to the poor in Jerusalem. Paul is on this final journey of encouragement and teaching, and he tells each place to send their gift and their representative to gather at Troas, and they'll all go on from there. Luke, remember, he lived in Philippi. So he rejoins Paul's entourage there, and there's that shift from uh, a narrative voice from him talking about the things that were happening to Paul as like distant things to that language where he's talking about we did this and we did that because he is now with them. So they head for Troas to meet the rest, but not until after the Passover celebration and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Those are very important Jewish celebrations, and Paul, who was Jewish, missing them or traveling during them, for him, that would be unthinkable. Luke, as the narrator, is also reminding his audience that Paul is a devout Jewish man and setting a timer for us to watch as well. We're going to hear that Paul's trying to get to Jerusalem for Pentecost, which takes place 50 days after the Passover. So Luke is essentially started that clock for us. The clock's running. We know how long he's got. And then he talks about five days of travel and then seven more days at Troas before they're all together and ready for the next leg of their journey. He's counting down time for us. But before they go, the church in Troas gathers together. Look at uh, Acts 20, starting at verse 7. On the first day of the week, we came together to break bread. Paul spoke to the people and because he intended to leave the next day, kept on talking until midnight. (laughs) Exasperation added entirely by me. Um, I I think Luke probably was celebrating that he kept talking until midnight. This is, by the way, this is probably the first reference uh, to followers of the way gathering together on the first day of the week. Um, The Jewish Sabbath is on the last day of the week, and to our reckoning, those two things, that first day and the last day, they may happen on the same day. 
kind of. I know that sounds confusing, and it is, but really only only a little. Let me explain. In those days, to the Jewish faithful, including a significant number of the followers of the way, the day began at sundown. Like in Genesis 1, where we're repeatedly told there was night and there was day, and that was the first day, or the second day, or whichever. Night and then day, right? Greeks thought that day ran from sunrise to sunrise. And the Romans, they started and ended each day at midnight, the same way we think of it now. And um, for a whole bunch of reasons we're not going to get into right now, I'm in the camp who thinks Luke is using the Jewish method of timekeeping in this passage. Just as the Sabbath day ended, and Jesus is said to have been raised from the grave, it makes sense that the early believers would gather to celebrate that resurrection right after the end of the Sabbath, what we would call Saturday evening. Most of those people would need to be working by around sunrise the next morning, so they wouldn't likely be gathering then. They probably usually met and shared a meal together, breaking bread as a celebration of the life of Jesus. Now, when you think breaking bread, a lot of us think of those big fluffy loaves, but really uh, think of it more of like pita bread, the, the little loaves of bread that we tend to talk about in the scripture. They're, they're little pita loaves. Um, so breaking bread is when you tear pieces off and then share it with the people around you. Breaking bread was a celebration of the life of Jesus. They've been taught to celebrate in this way. And then also uh, eating together as one that celebrated the family bond that their culture understood that a shared meal created. So not only are we family because we all do God's will in Jesus, but... We are family because we are sharing a meal together on a regular basis. Now, after that sharing, one or more people probably spoke on a normal night. But Paul was here in this night, and he was trying to share everything he could with them. And he kept on for hours, preaching all the way until midnight, trying to get in as much as he could because he was leaving in the morning. Verse 8 says, There were many lamps in the upstairs room where we were meeting. Seated in a window was a young man named Eutychus, who was sinking into a deep sleep as Paul talked on and on. When he was sound asleep, he fell to the ground from the third story and was picked up dead. You can picture this, can't you? A large group of people smashed into a big upper room lit by dozens of little oil lamps and those tiny flames each were devouring oxygen and emitting a light haze of smoke from the olive oil that they burned. Paul, who often said he was not the greatest speaker, he was going on and on. Interesting stuff that he was talking about, sure, but if he spoke anything like he wrote, it was hard stuff. It was filled with big words, and after a few hours, it doesn't matter how great your material is. People's brains are starting to take breaks from listening. Eutychus, who our translation refers to as a young man, he's actually called a boy in the Greek Luke wrote in. It might be that he is between the ages of 9 and 14 years old, but his name was a name sometimes, uh, well, not uncommonly, given to slaves. And slaves tended to be called boy until they were in their 30s at least. So we don't really know his age. What we do know is that something, 
probably a combination of the warm, cloying atmosphere, the long discussion, and the late hour. It drove him to go to the window frame and perch himself in it, trying to let fresh air in and stale air out. This, he was sure, would help him wake up. Until it didn't, and then he fell asleep and fell to his death. I imagine someone screamed. Someone else ran to the window and looked out at the limp, broken form on the ground below. And Paul? Look at verse 10. Paul went down, threw himself on the young man, put his arms around him. Don't be alarmed, he said. He's alive! You ever hear about this kid who couldn't find his dog and he put posters up with all the important information about his pet in hopes that it would be found and returned to him? The posters said, Lost dog. It only has three legs. Blind in the left eye. Right ear missing. Tail crooked from being broken as a pup. Accidentally neutered. Answers to the name, Lucky. If found, please call... Yeah. You know that name, Eutychus? It means Lucky. And he was. He was lucky. He was lucky to be one of those early followers of the way. He was lucky to have Jesus as Lord, as we all are. He was lucky to get to meet and hear from Paul, the great apostle and evangelist. He was lucky to be part of this gathering of people who shared with one another. There'd probably been plenty to eat that night, so that was lucky too. And to get a seat in the window so he could get fresh air while everyone else was sweltering in the warm stillness of a smoke-filled room, that is totally lucky. He's also lucky that the fall killed him, because internal injuries and other bad crushing blows could cause long, lingering, painful deaths in those days before modern medical techniques. And finally, he was lucky that Paul was there, to rush out to his aid. Paul stretched himself out on the boy and by faith prayed life back into him, just like Peter did with Tabitha back in Acts chapter 9, like Jesus did on several occasions, including the time where he called Lazarus to come forth from the tomb in John 11. Just like the prophets of old were said to have done at various times in various ways in ancient days, Eutychus was also lucky that he got to hear even more from Paul that night because Paul helped him up. Then they went to grab a little something else from the potluck upstairs. Verse 11, Then he went upstairs again and broke bread and ate, and after talking until daylight, he left. The people took the young man home alive and were greatly comforted. <laughs> As you might think. Now, if my preaching ever seems to go longer than you're comfortable with, know that, like Paul, it's because I'm excited about my subject. I love to talk about Jesus and the scriptures, and I get carried away sometimes because this is something I can do to help us come together. And then together we can go and help however it is that we have resolved to help, which is the whole point of everything Luke is trying to teach us about Jesus. Paul preached all the night through, but he still wasn't done. So even when the sun was coming up and people had to go, he wanted to keep talking. Luke writes in uh, verse 13, We went on ahead to the ship and sailed for Assos, where we were going to take Paul aboard. He had made this arrangement because he was going there on foot. Now, Luke doesn't say why Paul decided to walk to the next port. 
We know that it was a quicker journey on foot than it was by ship. We know the ship probably had the offering packed into it, so the rest stayed with the gift. Ships were also generally safer than, you know, walking through possibly bandit-infested land. Paul, I figure, he was still talking. And he walked with some of the believers in Troas to their fields or their shops or whatever. Or maybe he traveled with a group who was headed the same direction so that he could share with them. Or maybe the experience in Troas was just so intense he needed some time alone to spend in prayer and contemplation. Whatever it is, he made it to Assos and then he rejoined his party. Verse 14, when he met us at Assos, we took him aboard and went on to Mytilene. The next day we set sail from there and arrived off Chios. The day after that we crossed over to Samos and on the following day arrived at Miletus. Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus to avoid spending time in the province of Asia, for he was in a hurry to reach Jerusalem, if possible, by the day of Pentecost. So we've got a whole bunch more days we could add to our account there. There is more to this story. It goes on from here, but we're going to look at the rest of it next time. For today, reflect on how everything in this whole little complicated series of events was about the followers of the way working on being and staying unified as a family. The collection was about showing care for others, even distant others. The way it was handled was about showing people that their gifts were being cared for and used as intended, which was an act of caring for the giver as much as the gift. The stops they chose were designated to encourage the believers in their faith and about them all working together for the greater good. Paul wanting to pass on as much as he could was about everyone having the knowledge they needed to strengthen and grow their faith so that they could, in turn, pass on the love of Jesus to those they encountered. Just like the men and women of the church in those days, we should bend all of our efforts towards unity. Unity doesn't mean we're all the same or we all worship the same way or help the same way. God gives us each our own gifts and our own communities and our own desires. We're like pieces in a jigsaw puzzle. Each one of us is unique and has our own picture. But when we all come together, we become something so much greater and more beautiful than we can be on our own. So resolve to help how you can. Like Paul asked the Corinthians to do with the offering, what you can and will do is your decision. It's important. I believe we are all given enough so that we have something to share because that's how God works. Thinking about what you give back by passing it on is important. It's something each one of us needs to do. And to bring us full circle to where we started, remember that what you give should be what we're commanded to share. Kindness, love, forgiveness. These are things of God, the fruit of the Holy Spirit working in each of our lives. Don't pass on the anger, hatred, and destruction which the world encourages us to grow and parcel out instead. Focus on that fruit of the Spirit. So how about it? Decide what you will and what you won't give, and then do it. Be the unity we all wish we had. I'm going to stop there. Hey, whoever you are, wherever you are in this world, remember, you have nothing to fear, because God 
is already there. You can't go anywhere that God isn't. So go with God. Grace and peace to each and every one of you in the coming week. See you next time.